Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Hello again, Adam. Hello. It's been a while. We're slowing down. We're slowing down. We were just saying the, the second 50 episodes is going to take a whole lot longer than the first 50 to record, but that's okay. They continue. That's okay. The number's going up. And today's episode, which is number 53, we're going to continue the money, money, money arc with a look at research finances from the professor's perspective. Last time, the focus on the students. This time, we're going to flip the tables. And we've mentioned a few times now that Josh is a tenure-track professor And so really, for this episode, we're going to be leaning heavily on his firsthand experience on financing a research program from scratch. Attempting to finance, yes. (laughs) That's it. Uh, Good. I'm glad we're talking about the research program, because last time for students, we talked about salary, and I think that's quite boring for faculty. Uh, You're not fighting, looking for money to, you know, pay for rent and car and all those kind of things. It's the science. Yeah. And so, yeah, so... As many grad students uh, have experienced, you enter a fairly well-stocked lab uh, on your first day. Uh, I've done so multiple times in several different labs as a graduate student or a postdoc. Um, But Josh now has a new appreciation of the effort involved in accumulating all that necessary stuff through grant applications, hand-me-downs, garage sales, et cetera, et cetera. And then that only covers the stuff. Because most of the money over a research career will not actually be spent on things, although it depends a bit on the specific field. But within the paleolimnology field, the stuff is actually a smaller slice of the pie, as most of the funds will be eventually spent on either people or travel. Yep, which are, are really the important things. It's nice to have toys. I really do like stuff in general. Adam knows this. I like hobbies that have things associated with them. Um, but from a science perspective, you, you can't collect all these nice instruments and then not have anyone to run them or use the data from them. And, and you, you got to have some samples. Exactly. So let's dive right in. So uh, research funds are acquired by the professor and most grant competitions are quite competitive. Uh, be a rare one where it's like a, just a layup. You're in, in a lot of them, it's a case of you're competing against, you know, your peers for this uh, limited amount of funds. And so in general, uh, the approach is to start small and work your way up the ladder in terms of grant sizes with success, begetting success. So this is a situation, I guess this is in many ways the, um, what do you call it? The emblematic situation that the Matthew effect applies to, although it's since yeah, been yeah. applied to a bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, but uh, when you're starting, more so than any other time in a research career, you, some serious decisions have to be made on uh, how best to balance those slices, the, the pie between salaries versus equipment versus fieldwork versus dissemination costs. For sure. Yeah. The, the I mean, it's always a... Uh, uh, limited amount there's, there's not many people having an unlimited finance for their research program i don't know of any that exist uh and and even if you have lots of money you have lots of spending that comes with it so there's always going to be this need to balance those different competing 
uh, drains on the overall bank account. So I guess maybe you could rattle off with a bit of a list of what kind of things do you need to pay for sitting on your side of the, of the desk? Exactly. So I think it makes sense. So really, uh, if, as we talked about, there are things that you have, there are uh, travel things that need to occur, and then there are human resources. Uh, and a, you can scale that up from having an enormous lab group. I mean, in paleolimnology, you're not talking about massive research clusters at the size of like, um, you know, I think of medical science as being particularly large often in terms of infrastructure and number of technical staff and all those different things. They can be very large research programs, large research uh, institutes, ones that come to mind are some of the big physics institutes, etc. Those are enormous operations with multi-million dollar annual budgets like huge the large staff. hadron collider the large hadron collider the snow lab uh, at queens or out of queens um, that studies neutrinos among other things um, those are amazing facilities nobel laureates run those facilities um, but but they require huge infrastructure and huge operating funds but you can get that down to very small you know they're not be the basically average your, research lab is what you're saying absolutely not no uh and and the average is probably skewed you know to, to a pretty uh large tail on the small end there's people who have a couple of graduate students they may go to a conference they may do a little bit of field work often quite local um they have a few instruments that they need to be running in and they can work on relatively small amounts so it's very scalable but if you're starting a new job there are certain things you need, right? If you uh, are starting a job, many people start in July, you know, start in the summer. Um, that works well with the hiring timing and all those things. And um, so what are you going to do when you first arrive in that thing? The thing I was surprised at, I had to pay a little bit of extra money for my computer on day one. Uh, I got a desk, I got a chair, uh, it, I got a certain stipend towards my uh computer station workstation um but if i wanted an extra monitor i had to have the money for that and and if i wanted you know an upgraded cpu say you were going to be using that for uh computing uh, high performance computing broadly and you wanted to upgrade that that that's not going to be supported uh at every institution so that's something to keep in mind uh, that there are upfront costs that, that you maybe just don't uh never even really imagine might be there is, okay, I'm going to jump in here for a second. But there's some element of startup funds associated with each lab, though, isn't there? Or I'm, most, if not all, situations. Yeah, and this may be a, a debate, or not a debate, a topic for another arc or, or whatever, sort of the negotiation and, and starting a job and that kind of thing. Maybe it doesn't deserve its own arc, but it's not really tangential here. But to say most... Uh, uh, new hires will get some startup uh, funding. The amount that that is, it ranges hugely depending on the faculty you're in, the department. This is something that sometimes could be negotiated. Cluster hires often have different pots of money. In some places, they'll give a very large startup, but then they'll claw some of that back through other initiatives. Like if you get a uh, infrastructure grant later on, tons of variability. Um, but but most people do get some startup funds. And that's to deal with all these things, to deal with the basic things to begin with, hire that first couple students before you've had time to apply for grants, get in the field, buy some stuff. 
and then just have that. And and one of the nice things about startup is is it can be used for pretty much anything. Okay, so start in July. Um, next, yeah, or January. Oh. I mean, oh, January yeah. might be worse in some ways yeah. because you're so much further away from kind of when funds are often dispersed at the beginning of New Year. You're never going to get money given as a grant for a uh, fiscal start if you start January one. You just didn't right. apply in time. So. Okay. But anyway, so you got a desk, you got a chair, you got a computer. Um, you have to make a decision about whether you have a, <laughs> a field season that first yes. year. Is it, yeah, you know, sure. will you have data? Again, this is field dependent, but paleo, you know, most likely you want to collect something to measure. You're going to need to recruit students, which is a whole separate ball game. But the key thing that we're talking about today is that you'll need to pay some portion of their stipends. Yep, that's right. Uh, if you did get into the field and you brought back some samples, you, you're probably going to want to do some analysis on that or have the, uh, the laboratory infrastructure to prepare those samples for diatom analysis, to freeze dry those samples if you have kind of infrastructure things available. Um, it, it often will depend on what you can borrow at that time. You probably don't have enough startup to purchase a freeze dryer. They're very expensive for basically just being a, a refrigerator and a vacuum. Um, maybe those exist in there. You want to send some samples off and get some radiocarbon dates or lead to 10 dates. Uh, it, those are all things that have to be paid for because you're unlikely to have a gamma counter in your uh, in your lab to begin with. Yeah, because what would a gamma counter go for? Ballpark. The counter itself? Yeah. Or and the associates have to get it up and running. Like, yeah, John always said it, they were like somewhere between a quarter and a half a million dollars. I'm not sure how that has changed with inflation, but they're, they're very expensive items. And then how much would it cost if you want to use somebody else's gamma counter? Uh, I think the the going rate is between one hundred and twenty five and one hundred and forty dollars per sample. So you know, fifteen hundred dollars to data core, kind of on average. Again, lots of variability there, but that's the the ballpark we're talking about. In the order of magnitude, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's that trade off. You know, dating a core is obviously super important. Uh, you may have students that you've paid who can count diatoms, count coronamids, cladosphora. Um, which is a little less expensive, but if you want to send samples off for metals analysis or for isotopes or any of those things, those are those can be pretty expensive um, and uh, for analytical costs. Yeah, but I guess you know, fifteen hundred dollars for core. All you got to do is uh, analyze three hundred ish cores, and that gamma counter pays for itself. <laughs> you know, when you put it that way, that's right. Very good point. 300 cores. That's the uh, the trade-off point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not to mention maybe needing that much money uh, up front. But uh, yeah, I'm sure the university would, would spot me the money. <laughs> I just have to just tell them that I'll date 300 cores before before the, uh, the life of the instrument runs out. Come on, let's do this, you know, like in my... PhD thesis, how many full cores did I do? It was about half of it. Did like seven or eight. Yep. Some top top bottom stuff. I mean, yep. uh, let's just round it up to an even 10 for PhD student, 30 PhD students, boom, covered. That's it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think in my whole career, I've, I've probably, you know, worked on 
maybe 50 cores, something like that. <laughs> Only been doing this for 15 years. So yeah, six times that. Yeah, that's, that's about a hundred years of research. Give it <laughs> for an individual, to. one person. Be stupid, stupid not, not to. to. Yep. That's okay. It. Exactly. All right. Uh, but then I guess the other thing with things like gamma counters is you have annual maintenance costs on yes. uh, serious equipment. Even on not serious equipment, I guess, you know, you just have the, you know, just regular lab glassware, you know, annual breakage type costs and replacement costs. And all the disposables, gloves, chemicals, a case of slides is surprisingly expensive. This is a place to say <laughs> yeah, how much couple, you have a case of slides? I don't know, a few hundred bucks a minimum. I haven't bought a whole case in a long time. I think, in fact, I maybe I've never bought one. They've just been kind of one that's been in there but getting to the end of them, i'm gonna have to look that up soon um but yeah more than you would think right i mean it's the numbers themselves don't matter they the the key is that it adds up yeah you can easily go to the science stores on campus and just get pipettes and sharpies and tape and gloves and you're out for four hundred dollars easily um and it, you know if your startup is twenty thousand bucks uh for a year or a hundred thousand bucks total or i mean the numbers don't matter Th that's a pretty sizable proportion so you, you do need to find some more funds to to top yeah. those up um and before we get into those funds we talk about annual maintenance this cost of disseminating your research i guess one thing we didn't really cover in the notes but it's worth introducing here is um you don't have to pay to keep the lights on do you no uh no that is well, I don't, I'm not sure every place, I can't say every location. So as it works in ours, that is something that, uh, the faculty covers. Uh, so the university does charge the faculty for the space that it occupies. It doesn't charge per se for like amount of lights. There's not someone who comes and reads the meter every month. It has to do just with the area that the lab and then all of our offices and all of the other space, classrooms that are ours, et cetera, uh, take up. Uh, and you get charged a certain amount per square foot. In other, in other locations, it's not impossible that, that they do directly bill the, the faculty member as opposed to the, the like department. department or faculty covering that. We don't pay those costs directly. Um, that would be you know, covered by the overhead and things like that that come with granting. That, yeah. Do you want to talk about overhead, or is that like? Yeah, I guess that can come up. Maybe we'll we can talk about that in in a minute when we start talking about. Uh, and that's actually something that you would have a, a obvious, um, probably a much better uh, idea to or uh, information to share. Yep. All right. Well, we'll uh, but you're right about the disseminating research. Just to stay on topic here, uh, is that disseminating means publishing, obviously, which is uh, becoming. Uh, something that many people have to pay for as we move into a, a much more open access environment where article processing charges, APCs, are charged. And they range by quite a bit, you know, from $1,500 up to many thousands of dollars for some of the journals. Yeah. But a really important part of dissemination is to go and disseminate those those information to conferences. Uh, and th that adds up very quickly as anyone who's ever been to a conference and submitted their own claim, um, like a graduate student listening, would will remember. And that money has to come some, somewhere too. So where do you get the money then? 
where do you get the money? The age old question. Uh, anywhere you can is probably the the most important thing to say. And uh, and lots of little pots. It's not unlike the graduate student funding we we're talking about. Um, the f- first thing I would say is the startup is really important. So if you are uh, if you are hired negotiating, more startup is always going to be beneficial. And one of the nice things about startup is that uh, it really doesn't have any strings attached to it, right? There's no other than this is for you to get going with your research. There's no uh, uh, stipulation that this has to go towards salary or this has to go towards this project or this has to go towards this. So startup is is really useful in that perspective. And it's also really useful to kind of hold on to. There's this, I think a lot of people have lived and, and researched quite meagerly when they first start their uh, professorship. They didn't come from this, you know, what we're calling the fat cat professor lifestyle. Um, and so there's the, and you want to do all the things right away. Like you want to hit the ground running hard because the tenure clock has started and you just have all these ideas and you've just gone through the interview process and the hiring process and you want to spend it all. You want to you know, do that massive field season, hire everybody, buy all the things. Um, but that may not be the best case because if you don't, you know, access some of these other funding sources, then um, you'll, you'll want those funds because they can do almost anything. So, so holding on to some of those until you know you have a few other streams coming that are a little bit longer term is a, a really important lesson and, and th- some good advice that I got. Okay. All right. So startup funds from the university itself. Yep. Um, then you start applying to grants. And the, just through, I guess through your your friendly grant, uh, what are you? What's your job title? My, my my title. Well, I think most places would call me a research grants officer. Okay. Uh, specifically at Queens, I'm a research projects advisor. So, RB, RPA is my title, but more broadly, when you're looking up on NSERC, like talk to your RGO would be the uh, uh, the NSERC speak. Right there we go. Right, yeah. Who who can help? Right, because. Uh, where do you apply for all these things? As a grad student postdoc, you know a few, obviously, but there are other ones. There are internal ones, um, which may not be your purview, but they do exist. There's going to be someone in your department, faculty, um, university with information on more internal uh, funding opportunities. Most of those tend to be a little bit smaller. Uh, so minor research awards, they all have different names, small research grants, whatever they are. Um, but those, you know, absolutely very valuable tend to not have as arduous application processes as the bigger tri-council or other you know um, funding um, agency grants so those can uh, be used for for great work yep and they scale up and so i guess um yeah so you have internal in many ways it parallels the student experience so um, you have internal awards that you can apply for, which tend to be smaller in scale um, and much more focused. And then you could go to federal or provincial type of grants um, that uh, when we talk about, I guess, within paleoluminology, most of our work would be funded by the, uh, the 
I guess, tri-agency, like the research funding body, NSERC, which would be like the science and engineering funding body in Canada. Uh, the uh, At a federal level, it's split between like natural sciences, health sciences, and social sciences, basically. Uh, and everyone refers to them by their acronyms, so NSERC, CIHR, and CHIRC. Um, but basically, those are stand a lot of standard, you know, pots of money. And that's where you, instead of startup funds, you'd be looking for research project funds. So like, write a grant, I want to do X, and this is why you should give me the money to X, because it is important in this way and or that way. Uh, there is a small number of more open-ended grants that are more research program grants and the big one that josh should be intimately familiar with uh would be the discovery grant program uh which is kind of like in many ways seed money to uh um get a research program running on a baseline level the money's not tied to doing a particular pro project per se but lots of other grants are um, you also have what I would broadly and there are, to. just to say that, sorry to interrupt, but there are analogs in everywhere. Uh, NSERC is mirrored by in the UK, I think it's NERC, you know, so not whatever. Uh, the, there's not the U S, uh, national science foundation, NSF grants. There's a lot of programs under their banner, but there are similar kinds of things yeah. in there and, and they tend to be big money um so they kind of link in with some of the other things that i think adam is just about to jump into talking about so just to keep in mind that there are lots there are of analogs. other uh, similar things out there exactly um but yeah to do research on specific projects or or kind of to fund your program of fundamental research there is a whole subset of grants that i broadly class as partnership grants so that can be so instead of being directly funded by, you know, hello, Governor of Canada, give me X amount of money to do these projects. It's a little bit more. You go find a partner that might be interested in contributing 25%, 50% of the research funds. And then the funding agency will uh, um, provide the other half. But what will happen in all of these cases is that it's much more targeted research at this point. Like you may approach them in an open-ended way. But the partner that is providing half of the research funds will be interested in a particular thing. Uh, and that's what the research project will be all about. And uh, in the NSERC world, there's a huge umbrella program called the Alliance Program. That is absolutely tailored at this. And the partners can massively vary, whether it, it is academic partners with other institutions or other countries, uh, with private partners. And so this is like basically one way that our federal government kind of looks to fund science and innovation by kind of like doubling the money that you invest in research coming from uh, private, the private sector, and also similarly uh, the public sector. So in many cases, a government agency might be your partner and they might have some operating budget to do X, Y, and Z on a maybe more of an analytical level or something like that, but they don't have dedicated people to do the field work and the microscope work in a paleontological sense, but they might be interested in the data and they might have these gamma counters or other analytical tools that they're willing to put forward as in-kind contributions. And Water chemistry, things like chemical labs. Yep, exactly. And so there's a huge, I guess, spectrum uh, of what is available in a partnership grant level. And, and I guess, yeah, that'd be in my current, current life I spend a lot of time dealing with. 
Yeah, exactly. It, it, that's a good, from the government perspective, it's a good investment, right? They're putting in a certain amount of money, but more is getting done with it based on other sources um, is one way to look at sort of the take on that. Plus, it, it does give some indication, like when they're giving money to fundamental research in the Discovery Grant program, that's up to a, a body of experts to say, yes, this is interesting as well written it's well thought out we're going to get a, a good investment on that but there's never any guarantee that's going to be tailored to some sort of innovative output um, whereas partnership grants is maybe more likely that there is a patent at the end of this if that's the the area that you're working in not going to be the case for uh, paleolimnological research necessarily but we can find ourselves under similar types of granting structures because it's not only designed for for innovative kind of um, research though there are those programs that are only for that as well that we just don't know anything well, i just don't know anything about i'm sure adam has to deal with them occasionally yeah this i guess this is one thing where at times i'm sometimes amazed about you know what i didn't know about what i didn't know uh, right. as yeah. a, a grant student and what is out there and in, in the in the partnership grant world and the whole idea of double leveraging where you know you can take your partners money to one particular program and they will double it and then combine that with something like MyTax, which has got to focus on training students. And as long as some portion of the money is going to uh, student salaries, you know, they can double it again kind of thing. So then all, so the idea is to create a win-win-win scenario where, you know, you're creating money for fun training the next generation of scientists. The government is furthering pure research on some level and at the same time uh, fostering economic development by putting money into private R&D that smaller companies or even bigger companies, but whatever, a particular avenue of research that would not happen otherwise without the kind of um, nudge in terms of the leveraging of the funds happening through the, um, the granting programs. For sure. Yeah, so those are ways in which much of the project-specific uh, research ends up getting funded in, in a Canadian context. If you're working in in larger sums of of research money, it's unlikely to be internally funded. There has to be some sort of external funding from the university, or from the um, federal or provincial governments, or both, uh, and or linking in industry for sure. That it, for a lot of people is is really the bulk of the the money that comes in to run projects and uh, and fund research. Yeah, because I think in terms of the sums of money being involved. So if you talk about the basic discovery research program, if that was your only funding source, you know you're going to have a rather small lab. Like you're not going to have more Very than much, one or yeah. two students at any one time. At most, so if you're looking at any lab where there is like a, you know, a student office, let's say, um, then that uh, professor will be very likely have multiple research partnerships at play. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it, that's just what's needed. The the funds are not sufficiently large to have five grad students and the field work and the travel and the analyses that go along with them it's just yep. not going to be sufficient I, without tapping into a broader research network of some kind 
Yeah, for sure. And that's the other thing we haven't talked about. Most, I mean, partnership grants often have multiple PIs, different universities often incorporated into them um, in the same way that many of the more project specific grants uh, do. So, so getting in on those kind of uh, network opportunities, whatever, the, whatever granting program they fall into can be really, really important, especially when you're at the, the start of your career, um, because it, it does contribute into that what did you call it for the Matthew effect? Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the idea of, of sometimes these people are, are more established, not sometimes these people are more established. They have, uh, the, the research infrastructure, they have the history perhaps of working in an area and you're bringing this toolkit to bear in that area. Um, they know more and, people. And they know more people. They, uh, have had more grants. Their CVs are are more complete and larger. There's lots of reasons that hitching uh, your stakes to a, a new collaborator, an old collaborator, whoever it may be, uh, is a really great idea. And you get to work with cool people, and and that can be a, a great part of it. Um, uh, but if it brings in a few bucks, that that works quite well as uh, as well. And part of the intent also, I guess, one that uh, uh, didn't scribble down here, Ola, but you build a broader network outside of academia and that um, in many ways create can create pathways for your students to pursue careers once they complete their studies as well. For sure. Absolutely. And that, uh, that's when you part talked of the about purpose tax, as well, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. When you talked about my tax, I mean, uh, the, like that. that's a... I think a stated part of the reason for that program is to introduce people into, you know, the potential to work in those industrial kind of uh, lines in some cases. As effectively their main purpose. I think it's been a while since I dug into their history, but I think their initial purpose is it was very math focused and it was supposed to be a math, create links between math and industry to find an avenue for math graduate students to find careers that were not necessarily um, in academia. Because keep in mind that in order for any given research professor to replace themselves, they need to generate one student. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Very true. Um, I mean, we could always grow the, <laughs> the discipline, but you know, if in a career you have 20 PhD students, a number of them are not going to end up in academia for whether of their own choice or because of the job market, whatever it may be. Yeah. And so that is another purpose of the partnership grants is just to like break down some of the barriers and the, you know, so-called ivory tower with broader society. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing uh, we were talking about, that's primarily, we've kind of been talking about uh, for the last little bit is to fund specific research programs. But there are granting opportunities within this uh, structure, federal, provincial, that are for other things. So for infrastructure, for example. So NSERC, we were just talking about, has a research, what's our, What's the T in our Tools. Tools, there you go. Research, tools, and infrastructure. Instruments. Uh, program. Instruments? I'm 99% sure it's go. instruments. Oh, you, I'm sure you're right. It makes more sense. Because it is for things. Um, anyway, they, they fund buying stuff, buying cool toys to do science. Uh, and, and I got the research part, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. So that's good. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and, and another one uh, that is not uh, funded by 
it's federal, but it is not one of the tri-councils, is the Canadian Foundation for Innovation, CFI, which uh, for many labs is is going to be the biggest buy of stuff that ever happens. Um, there are programs for sort of new hires or, or are commonly used by new hires. There are larger infrastructure uh, grants that are through CFI uh, that people can tap into it at other points in their career, but they, they really are for big ticket items like gamma counters uh, like gamma counters like um uh all sorts of things icpms uh spectrometers for really anything you can imagine like if you can if you can find it in the catalog of some uh, company that produces equipment you can justify it to cfi if, if you can make that justification and and that is totally separate from you know your st- your startup funds, NSERC money, any of those kind of things. That is to to buy things and do things. Uh, so you can renovate spaces, for example, with that money as well. It's yeah. really about setting up your laboratory and and what the things you need in it. Yeah, and that's a, yeah, and so I, that's a key different stream because that's going to be a tough sell to a partner. Is like there's a half a million dollar piece of equipment I want to buy. If you give me half of the money, I can get inserts. Give me the other half of the money, and then uh, I'll go along my merry way. That's a, that's, that's a tough right. sell. And then I have, <laughs> I have a walk-in fridge. <laughs> you know, for things like that, right? Like it's never going to be sexy to say I need to buy a freeze dryer or a fridge, but you need those things. Um, and this is a good way to do that because yes, there has to be innovation. It's in the title. It needs to be, but but that can be about the research. The research research can be innovative, and you can buy things that seem quite mundane. Um, you know, you want to have a couple of fancy big ticket items on that, on that buy somewhere. So you can sell the latest drone or the best microscope or, or those kind of things. But it's also okay to say, you know what I really need to do is I need a new fume hood. The one that's here is 70 years old and I don't think it works very well anymore. Um, and that's fine too, which is also quite useful. I guess uh, another tangent about, uh, particularly about expensive instruments is the possibility for um, commercial prospects is the wrong word, but some self-funding by using it when you're not using it to do that $125 a sample type stuff. Yeah, cost recovery. There we go. That's for the, the instrument. Yeah, for. absolutely. If you have any instrument, I mean, you could, you could uh, charge for samples to be run, it could be done internally. There are instruments that are not just for paleolimnology. You know, if you have a uh, spectrometry facility, you have a elemental analyzer, you have those things, or maybe people in engineering, uh, other people in your uh, unit. If you're in a geology or biology geography unit um, that that want to run samples, and you know that would pay for. You know, you could charge them cost, uh, be a really good colleague. You could charge them a little bit more and and maybe pay for the associated consumables. Yeah, tank of oxygen, the the consumables, the annual maintenance can be quite expensive, as we said a minute ago. You could be thousands of dollars to maintain these instruments, and it's nice to be able to at least cover that part of it. Um, yeah, so that that's a, a very, you know, you're not going to pay for field seasons on that kind of money unless you have a couple gamma counters dedicated to full-time samples for other people yeah yeah you're not going to be running a commercial operation but you know exactly. i guess it's more an idea of like them not sitting there gathering dust in between your own sure. samples 
that's a very good point because a, a lot of instruments like to run. So our, our elemental analyzer likes to run. It doesn't like to be sitting. Um, it, you get better results the more it runs. Um, and that, that's part of it. Good point. Okay. And then I guess, so we kind of touched on the gear and timelines and things like CFI have to be planned year in advance, years in advance in some cases. Yep. But a key thing, I guess this, this never really crossed my mind as a, um, as a graduate student, but it becomes more of an issue as you become established. If you choose to move, what happens to all your stuff? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I don't have any intentions of moving. If anyone from York is listening, <laughs> I'm not thinking about this. Just going to preface it with that. But uh, I've so seen, other, pe seen other people move. How about Hav that? was in the middle of it. I helped Mike Pizarek move a number of his things when he went from Carlton to Brock. So he took some stuff with us. It fit in about the size of a U-Haul truck, the things that he had. Though admittedly, many of those were his samples, which makes sense that he would you know, those would be his. Um, so I think it really does depend. A, a lot of cases, it depends on what the source to buy those things were. So things that were purchased with CFI funds uh, belong to the university. I think that's... That would be, and I, this is where I can be, a, put my RPA hat on a little bit. And then there's an, even a distinction within our office between like, quote unquote, the grants office, which is like funds that you would apply to versus... Yeah institutional programs which are grants which the university applies to and then allocates right. a certain amount of funds to the professors from their broader quota exactly and and you know it's tied down a lot of these things are big obviously bolted so to the ground belong to exactly quite literally or built into the fume hood or walk-in fridge or whatever those kind of things that's so my building i'm taking it with me that's my large yeah, hadron exactly. collider i'm taking it to my new lab in japan thank you very much <laughs> good luck yeah that's right um versus other things uh, maybe not so there is a, a a thing to consider obviously um uh, generally i think your, your slate is quite a bit cleaner when you would move to a new location you will have left many things behind uh your students obviously are left behind some will end their program and come and join you but that's very unlikely they're going to finish there uh, so you're relieved of their salary costs i guess that's one thing to think about <laughs> this is horrible but, i don't talk about this anymore <laughs> but uh you also no longer have their um shining company um yeah so that that's definitely something that would have to be considered and uh, and frankly what i was joking about not thinking about it, it just seems like an incredibly tiring uh proposition to start over again it's hard to do the first time i don't know if i would want to do it again uh to start in a new location and, and go through all that learn all the things about the system and how to fund these things and the internal kind of structure because every university is different and, and then to get going again um yeah no it seems so daunting like uh, yeah. and you know seeing it you know both as a grad student of like you know someone moving in that has come from another university and seeing but yeah i cannot imagine how uh, much of a headache that must be yeah yeah agreed uh, i'm though there are obviously good reasons and people do it yep but so it just has to be uh, factored into the the mental calculus yeah um this is one thing where i differ in my like you know graduate student career from you is that I definitely had like a first-hand experience in both 
walking in on day one into a established lab versus a starting lab, which I think, mm-hmm. I don't know if that affected my perspective at all. Of like when I first arrived at Queens and like, I was like, there's so much stuff here. Oh uh, God, it's so shiny. All the floors are marble or whatever. As opposed to, you know, walking into a lab where I was, you know, the very first undergraduate student. And there was like one master student who had started six months earlier kind of thing. Right. Yeah, it's funny, eh? Uh, I, and I wonder, I mean, because I only ever started an established lab. So it seemed like everything was there. Um, I wonder what the what the experience is. They, they probably don't know any different, but like of our graduate students, like maybe maybe Jenny's kind of getting there in terms of the, the the infrastructure but it, in some days some days it feels like we're only just kind of getting everything sorted like this week we moved our microscopes into what i hope will be their permanent home um i've been there a year she's been there seven uh so it does take time uh i think um as with anything there's trade-offs right mm-hmm. the the what i call plank holders so that's like an old navy term for the first crew on a ship uh they get a lot of your time right they get a lot of your energy because you are there's less of them. Uh, you, you they probably you don't have the senior people to share methodology and you know so I work on the microscopes quite closely with the students. There's no one else to help them with their diatoms that kind of thing. Um, you know, their projects are my projects. You know what I mean? They're like really dear to my heart. I don't have a lot of other things going on, so th- they definitely get a lot of HR sort of support. But they may not have access to all the tools, you know. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting to like compare. So the I did my undergraduate lab uh, with Roland Hall in Waterloo, and so when I first arrived, it was very much there was a lot of hand-me-down equipment in there. But it was also uh, I was his first undergraduate student, and then you know, on many days there was literally nobody else in the lab when I was learning diatoms. So I'd call over right. to his office, like. Roland, can you tell me what this is? Roland, can you tell me? He's probably trying to write his very first grants at the time, but I was oblivious <laughs> to that. Uh, and, you know, he was intimately involved in every step. Um, but, you know, by the time I went to the, uh, you know, do my PhD with John at uh, Queens, you know, I was studying a, um, you know, proxy. I was looking at invertebrate remains. Uh, John had never looked at invertebrate remains in a... You know, I could have called him over and he'd be like, that is not a diatom. Yeah, that's right. I think it is a, I, I'm pretty sure it is a coronamid <laughs> or a cladocerin. <laughs> yes. And so like the level of uh, direct involvement is um, night and day because he was more, his big picture he had, you know, his background was algal, but there's lots of people in his lab over the years that had developed expertise in other proxies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. At that time, he's CEO, CFO, and COO of the whole corporation, but not, you know, he's not managing individual uh, product bits line. at that point. Yeah. yeah, product lines. Yeah, exactly. Product lines, exactly. So, so an interesting comparison, um, and, and and there are benefits on both. Oh, yep. Oh, absolutely. So, I think like we talked about the big picture items that we wanted to cover but at this point i think even just when i started thinking of what i could pick your brain about um you know there's just general questions that i've always been wondering like how much does yeah, it nine, cost? 9 50 p.m is is definitely the best time to get <laughs> straight answers out of josh perfect <laughs> how much does it cost to rent a helicopter 
I've never uh, rinsed one. It depends one. on the helicopter. Yeah, it depends on what you want in terms of the instrument. Uh, the ones we use for research are like the ones that are supported. Oh, that's the other thing we didn't say. You're like some field-related thing. So I, we get money from as in-kind support for helicopter operations from Polar Continental Shelf Program, for example. So you submit an application, a, a, a project description for what you're going to do, the logistical requests, and they will often cover some or all of the helicopter support up to a certain amount so this year i got 12 or so hours of helicopter time that they were willing to pay for they coordinate all the logistics um and and i just had to go and and do the work sign off and the things and i never had to i never got to i never had to pay them and then get reimbursed it was all done on contract um it only is if you're working in the arctic obviously or the north i think uh just has to be north of 60 don't quote me on that but that's my guess but there are other programs for those kind of things anyway the helicopters we pay for just to answer your question uh, that they pay for are about 1800 dollars an hour something in that range okay and what does 12 Canadian hours dollars. of helicopter time actually translate to it's a real good question. Uh, depends how you use that. So if you buy a helic, if you go, this is getting a little into the weeds here, but if you go and order, right, if you go and just say you want to rent a helicopter, there may be minimums for the day. So the, the minimum that they'll let you rent it for is three hours, say, um, because other than that, it's not really worth the effort because it could be doing a longer job and just ferrying people around. That's not always the case, but in some, in some, uh, uh occurrences that is that's not the case with pcsb because they basically buy a helicopter in a nuvic for the whole year uh for the whole summer so you know if you only use uh 1.8 so the minimum they'll they'll run is at 0.1 so six minutes is the minimum t startup time every time they turn on the helicopter that's when you're paying uh, it only is counting as hours when the thing is running so if it's sitting on the ground running or if it's flying um so you could you so can 12 hours is more than 12 hours 12 hours can be a lot more than 12 hours so that is usually i budgeted over four or five days of flying uh, but you can go through hours really quickly so this summer i think it, the shortest day was a 1.8 and that was basically going out to a couple sites moving a few times maybe we came back and fueled once and then you know that was like eight or nine hours of total daytime uh, most of which was it just sitting on the ground and the pilot sitting reading. Um, versus uh, another day we had the helicopter on fixed floats. So they had pontoons on the helicopter so it could land on the water where we used four and a half hours straight through. Like we went, you know, from eight o'clock and at 1230 we had used four and a half hours and that was my day basically. Um, we got a lot of samples in that time, but, you know, it was lunchtime and we were done. Um so it really does vary quite a bit in the same way that that number can go up if you're using barrel gas that's been stored out in other places. There are things that make that more expensive. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess uh, a key thing, and I guess this really is illustrated by the $1,800 an hour, is that anything to do with science is expensive, has a markup. Yes. I mean, aviation is expensive in general, so that might be the, but, but the point is, is accurately taken. If you take a, I, I'm not going to pick, I'm going to pick on Fisher just because that's the big company. I don't mean them specifically. It's not just them. It's more science. 
So if you take a bag of elastic bands that you get at the at the grocery store or at the uh, uh, home or the um, office supply store and you sell it at a, uh, a science company, say it's stamped with Fisher or BWR or whoever it is, um, it becomes like five times more expensive. Um, maybe they're better elastics. Are they five times maybe more sciencey? Stronger? Uh, I'm sure they are. Less contaminants? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. But the idea is that, you know, it's expensive to make things uh, in very clean facilities out of very uh, consistent material. So there is a reason it's more expensive, jokes aside. Um, but but just some things are, are quite pricey and everything related to science tends to be pretty pricey. So although sometimes numbers sound large, they don't go as far as you think in terms of the grants? No, no, they, they definitely uh, do not. Uh, especially as inflation gets expensive, uh, gets you know, it continues to be a thing. Uh, hotel costs are insane at the moment. If you've just booked a trip for personal travel, everything is is expensive. There's no cheap conferences anymore. You, you know, the days of because I'm also on the SCAS uh, Society of Canadian Aquatic Sciences executive, and and so planning conferences is one of the really big things. And r- legitimately, people you know um, take note of the fact that. Registration costs are very high. Um, the cost of hotels is very high. Travel is, but you know, the markup that we we get is effectively nothing on on those. Like that is just the cost of doing business. Literally, the days of cheap conferences are 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 gone, unfortunately, because everything is so expensive. Oh man, it's a depressing depressing. No, I'm gonna end and end the show on some more positive notes. Um, I guess we never really spoke about overhead and no, yeah, it's I don't true. know if it really fits in, but one thing that stuck with me, maybe, maybe we can leave, ago. we could leave that for the university one too, because right, really in some ways the, cause we do, are intending to talk about universities, like overhead is, is how the university funds a lot of things too. So we should make a note to tuck that in there, but it is the part just as because we have said it. Uh, do you want to give the definition of what overhead is really briefly? Uh, you don't get to see it, but it, yeah, it does. It pays it. my salary. And yeah, t- exactly. Uh, Adam loves overhead. Overhead's the best. <laughs> <laughs> I work on commission. Um, but Hell, it pays my salary too. Don't, we're not kidding. <laughs> no one's kidding anyone here. But uh, no, um, so basically, uh, just to, I don't even know what this, this is, but on every grant, um, basically the university will take its cut. It'll take a small amount of the that are going not necessarily a small depends on the particular yeah, I was going to say <laughs> but it'll take a um, amount that of proportional to the direct cost of research and that amount can vary whether it's just coming from a partner coming from a partner but then being matched by an agency being coming directly from an agency or I guess we never really mentioned like the more specific uh, type of grants where a small foundation, small foundation may have a very targeted grant that you apply to, and they will limit certain things by saying none of these funds may go towards overhead, and that's just basically or no more than ten percent or any of those kind of yeah, yeah of the um, just a portion of all the grant funds that the university basically portions off for itself for the cost of running the university, and I guess because we talk about not never having to worry about the lights, the electricity, or the you know, the gas meters outside the Bunsen burners, for example. Um, an analogy that stuck with me a very long time ago was of 
research labs as sort of a protected small business within the university. So you're not worrying about those very basic infrastructure type things in terms of like our costs is like light and heat. But you are in the business of writing grants that will give you the funds to get, which are the sort of like the contracts to do the work that you're interested in doing, which drew you to the life of academia in the first place. Yeah, and that, that makes perfect sense. It's a, a very good one to keep in mind. And uh, I am the CEO of a very, very small <laughs> business. And so I guess uh, um, a topic for a future talk would be like, which which should be the more preferable CEO of a small business within a, you know, a university kind of setting or, you know, the independently wealthy gentlemen scholars of yore that had unlimited freedom to do whatever they wanted in terms of, you know, measuring the charge on electrons in their basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that is a debate. You know, there are good things about working in a big team, but also, you know, you just go out and trance around and collect some rocks and barnacles and draw pictures of them and once a year go to london to give a, a paper at the royal society uh in your in your tweed plaid suit yeah it's a simpler life <laughs> and no one and no one had and there were no constraints other than i guess general society's constraints upon what was acceptable where at the conferences yeah, uh, gentlemen scholars indeed. Yeah, lots of them. Yeah. All right. I think that's a, a pretty good. I'm sure that was not all of the knowledge, uh, or not knowledge, all of the things that bounce around inside your head, but uh, a few of them for sure. Um, did we get any mail this week? We did not. And apparently. Any toots? We, uh, I made some. I tooted, but. Uh, <laughs> But no one responded to my tweets, for better or oh, worse. Yeah. But okay, <laughs> or tweets. We're talking about Mastodon, guys. Uh, <sighs> it's the joke. Anyway, yeah. Uh, once again, but no one knows we have those handles. <laughs> well, that's, we just have to make it very clear. That's why we're gonna gonna lay them out uh, oh, right now in the closer. Here we go. So thank once again, thank you for listening to Core Ideas. The Paleo-Limnology Podcast. If you have a question or a comment or perhaps a suggestion for a future show, please send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter X uh, handle is at coreideas, so that's kind of defunct. Our Mastodon handle is at coreideaspaleo at mastodon.social. Um, so same as the Core Ideas Paleo Twitter, but now at the mastodon.social and we read everything you send us it doesn't take long uh even if it takes us a couple days to get to it yeah and uh an archive of our past episodes and show notes is maintained on our website at uh but the easiest way to find that link is just check out our twitter or mastodon bios and if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating, subscribe, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get those favorite podcasts. We love those five-star ratings and comments. Uh, they're few and far between, but that's okay because we're just still doing this for fun. And that's it for today. But we will be back soon to explore how money fuels academic research in more detail, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy even when talking about the economy of knowledge.